Everybody enjoy the crisp in the air this morning? Isn't that great? I grew up in uh, Wyoming, and so whenever it's a little crisp in the air, I'm, I'm, I'm a little excited. I'm not going to lie to you, so I'm glad winter's coming along. Here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, last week, we, we talked about this idea of drawing near to God. And out of this drawing near, we talked about this whole idea of, of, of anchoring ourselves into who God is, His person, His work. And out of that anchoring, God has called us in this unique way now to stir one another, to consider how to stir one another towards love and good deeds. And all week long, as I've been praying and, and thinking through it, the one thing that I keep coming back to is the reality of why all of us are here this morning. We're here because, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we get to draw near. Amen. You ever thought about that? Like this whole gigantic world is spinning and, and doing all kinds of things around us. People are going through life. All these things are happening. And yet in the midst of it, we stop for a moment as a group of people together. And we draw near. I think we're going a little crazy, aren't we? What do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you tell me. I just want to draw near. <laughs> but I'm going to pray for us this morning. And here's what I want to do. I, th- I think in our busy lives, like as I've been um, interacting with people, have you noticed this week people are really freaked out? I mean, people are just, I mean, they're on edge the way they're dealing with things and where they're at. And, and in the midst of it, there's a group of Christians saying, draw near, draw near. In the midst of everybody wondering, watching the Dow do this and do this and do this. And I was sitting down with a guy in Starbucks and it was so funny. I could tell he was jittery about the stock market. And so we just started talking. And he goes, aren't you nervous? And I go, well, not really. And he just looked at me and he goes, what? And in the best way I could, I just looked at him and, and we talked. And my goal was that he would draw near. So we're going to pray this morning. I'm going to give you about a minute. We're about ready to approach, the Bible talks about this throne room of grace. We're about ready to draw near so that he might now, via his power, be able to come into our lives and give us a means and a mechanism to not only just survive this life, but to be a group of people that live this life with passion and with glory. So take the next minute, the next minute is yours. Pray for yourself. Pray for the people around you just that God would draw us near. Jesus, the Bible tells us right now you're sitting at the right hand of the Father. That while the world is spinning out of control, it feels like, while all the world leaders are trying to help rescue us from everything that ills our world and and, uh, brings unease to all these populations they're called to lead, I'm reminded you're still king. You are still Lord. You are on your throne. There's nothing that's out of control. Everything is under control and how you've designed it. And God, I've got to believe right now in a weird way you're, you're rocking everything about this planet when it comes to our governments and our financial institutions. And you're reminding us that these are not where we're to place our hope. And so as a group of people, we're coming to you this morning, Father, and we're just placing our hope in you and you alone. God, I understand all of us are drawing near with fear. We're drawing near with sin. We're drawing near with all kinds of things. But thank you so much that you sent your son that we might be able to draw near in spite of all of our inadequacies. God, I pray this morning that 
this service wouldn't be the same old service that maybe we tend to go through. But that instead we would be a group that gathers, that are stirred. Not just stirred to do anything, but stirred towards love and good deeds. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Now, the thing that is important about where we're going this morning is to remind ourselves what kind of a world that we live in. I think over and over we forget as we go through our life that, we, that this world is a fallen world. It's a world that's filled with pain. It's a world that's filled with, with, with uh, temporariness of, of unease, of people struggling and trying to figure out how do I get rid of this unease and discomfort? How in the world do I find safety and comfort and security? Everything about this world, that's what we're trying to clamor. It doesn't matter if we're in the United States or even as I've traveled around the world to different places. The thing that I've learned is everybody on this planet is trying so hard to overcome a fallen world. They're trying to find joy. They're trying to find contentment. They're trying to find happiness. They're trying to find satisfaction. And the reality is, is when you talk to these people, you find out that they're no different than anywhere else. It's just all these people... Seeking with everything they are to overcome the fall. Now the Bible tells us that the means by which we, we overcome the fall, we talked about this last week, is, is that, that, that through the person and work of Christ, he's created this way now that I can boldly approach the throne of grace. I can draw near to God. The cross and, and the tomb were evidence that now I have this capacity to be able to draw near to God. And in my drawing near, the Bible in one high holy call just says, listen Attach yourself to God. Quit clamoring and quit striving and quit doing all these things you're doing. The Bible just in one big bold step says draw near and attach yourself to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do everything in your power in this drawing near to hold and cling to him alone. We talked about the reality, though, is as we seek to now draw near to God and to place our hope in Him, that we have to let go of things. And boy, we don't like that, do we? Oh, man. In fact, this week, in all kinds of ways, God's been bombarding me with things that I don't like to let go of. And then He says this amazing statement in 1024. He says, let us consider how to stir one another towards love and good deeds. Now, the reason I like that word stir is he follows that up right after it in 1025. And he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. In other words, in this world that is going chaotic, you've got to get together. You've got to find ways in which your day that you start to rearrange your schedule to be around believers. Because everything in this world is drifting in one way. And all of us as Christians are trying everything we can to fight to go the other direction, aren't we? Oh, gosh, I was watching TV yesterday. I haven't watched TV for a long time. My wife and I decided, uh, TV. Not because, I mean, if you have it, that's great. But we just decided, oh, gosh, it just consumes your time. And as I sat down and watched the TV, I, it was no wonder everybody's depressed. Oh, my gosh. The world is falling apart. What are we going to do? You know, is McCain going to save us? Is Obama going to save us? The answer, No. I mean, at one point, I wanted to call up and say, stop the madness, turn off the TVs, you know. It's just, it's just this whole thing is just pushing us in one direction. And so in order to avoid, like, the, the reality of what's going on around us, we watch sports and we watch shows and we watch all these things to just try to forget for a little bit. Oh, the world is falling apart. 
And this is the world that now God looks at all of us and says, I want you to enter it with love and good deeds. That's where I want you to go. I don't want you to go where it's safe. I don't want you to go where it's secure. I don't want you to go where it's comfortable. I want you to be a group of people that believe so much in me, that believe so much and cling to this hope that you have, that I want you to be a group of people that while everyone else is running away from it, I want you to be a group of people that actually runs into where there's pain and uncomfortableness and insecurity. That's where I want you to go. And it's no wonder that the writer of Hebrews says, you got to get together. And if you remember, I told the story about those five women in, in China who literally they had to constantly keep telling one another, go back in, go back in. Why? Because that's not the natural thing that we do. It's not normal for us to do that. In fact, one of the things that, that I learned when I was in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, I, uh, a guy in our church was a psychologist in the, in the military. And he talked about this, this fact that in the United States, they have to train young men and women how not to run from the battle and actually how to pull the trigger and kill somebody. They have, to, they have to literally train them, retrain their thinking because everything in them is saying, run from the battle, get away, don't go into it. And they have to spend time after time after time beginning to, to train them that you can go in here. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is in, 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 a, in a different way, but he's saying, look, you can go in there. Now, at the beginning of this summer, just to kind of tell you where I'm coming from, I heard Francis preach, and in him preaching, he, he said this statement. He said, we need to learn to love our neighbor as ourself. And that started to really just perplex me. I, 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 in May, I remember grabbing my Bible and just going, God, teach me what this means. Show me what it means. And I started in Luke 10. And go there with me. Let me show you something about what I mean by love your neighbor as yourself. As you know, that a teacher had approached Jesus and he was going to try to trip Jesus up. And in Luke 10, in verse 25, it tells us the story. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And look at verse 29. But desiring to justify himself. In other words, desiring to get himself off the hook. Desiring to not have to deal with what what he had just quoted to Jesus. Desiring to hide behind everything he could. Desiring to find scripture to explain away what he knew he needed to do with this. Just to give you a little bit of an insight. He said, who's my neighbor? Oh, who's my neighbor? Jesus, could you help me out here? Throw me a bone. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of this one. And Jesus says this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him. And departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The word there is literally his, his gut just hurt. His bowels were moved is the literal idea. He just couldn't stand it. And in verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds. Pouring on oil and wine, 
And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, or or literally the idea is uh, two days worth of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, the thing that I love about this, and this is what stirred me at the very beginning of the summer to start thinking through this. I don't know if you caught what Jesus attacked, but the first thing he came after was a person that came up to Jesus and he wanted to explain away who his neighbor was. And Jesus took and he goes, I'm not going to let you do that. Not only did Jesus now grab him and grab, put him back in front of his neighbor, but he said, you've got to understand what I mean by love. See, in a world that's defined love by what I can get from you, Jesus comes into this and says, no, I'm going to redefine love so that you understand what I mean when I say love the Lord your God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He attacks his apathy, doesn't he? Did you see the two guys that walked by? They went to the other side. Literally, the idea is, is I don't have time to deal with this right now. You don't understand what's going on in my life. I'm a priest. I have to give oversight to all these people. I'm a Levite. I, I can't afford to get dirty right now. You don't understand. He goes after apathy in such a unique and a stunning way that people at this time would have gone, whoa, 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 whoa. Not only does he go after their apathy, but he starts to go after how much love will cost. See, the thing I think we forget when we talk about this idea of love your neighbor as yourself is there's a cost underneath it to which all of us need to start going, wow, is this what God means? The cost was money, the cost was time, the cost was effort, the cost was all these things that came along with it. And this man, literally this this Samaritan, the idea was he was willing to do whatever it took because he literally loved his neighbor as himself. And this is what I started to pray and beg God to show me. God, open my eyes and show me how in the world Cornerstone can become a group of people that leaves apathy, that leaves comfort, that leaves security, that leaves all these things that the world holds dear, that literally puts our money and our time and our energy and our families at risk. Because God, if this is love and this is the greatest thing you said that I can call this group of people towards, if this is it, God, God, open the elders' eyes. Go open the pastor's life to begin to show us how we take a group of people and put them into this privileged position where literally we start to forsake the things of this world and start to hold to what you see is near and dear to your heart. And I realized what I was praying was a miracle. I was praying something that just doesn't naturally happen. How do I know that? Because I know myself. I was begging God all summer, God, show me what this means. And he led me to this text that we're in. You can go to Hebrews 10. See, the kind of love that he's talking about in Hebrews 10, when he says, stir one another towards love and good deeds, he's going to define a little bit further than what we talked about last week. It's what I was talking about with with this, this whole concept that we tend to make godliness about the wrong things. 
We, we tend to make godliness about how smart I am or, or, or how much uh, little, little religiosity things I do. We, we tend to make it about the wrong thing. And the writer of Hebrews calls this group of people back and he says, No, let me show you what I mean by love and good deeds. Why you need to gather. Why you need to stir. Why it is that you need to be about this. And look what he says in verse 32. And I love this. He says, but recall the former days after you were enlightened. See that phrase? Recall the former days. How many of you remember when you first came to Christ? Do you remember? Like some people uh, grew up in the church. I grew up in the church, but I kind of, I totally went off the deep end. And so I kind of, I wasn't, I wasn't a saved person. But do you remember when you first came to Christ? I remember when I first came to Christ, I didn't know anything about this book. I mean, I grew up, I was like Hale Awana on the March for Youth guy. But I mean, I just memorized all this stuff just because I, I don't know, I, I was very competitive. Let's be honest. That's what I was. I really could care less what was in there. You know, I was getting my little crowns. I was a sparky. Anybody else a sparky growing up? Yeah. Ooh, I was, man. I had three crowns. I got, I think it was called the Timothy Award or something like that. And uh, I would wear my, my red vest around and all my patches. And uh, it was kind of like uh, Boy Scouts gone saved. And, um, uh, but it was just this whole idea where I was like, oh, I grew up in that. But I'll never forget when I finally, for the first time, wasn't able just to regurgitate this information. But where that information finally grabbed my heart and I became a freak. I was this person that was full of passion without knowledge. Now, the Bible talks about the two are good. But I was chasing down old friends. I remember, like, literally two days after I got saved, I was sitting there for my first day going, Okay, God, what do you want me to do? And I was just praying it, you know? And I just was so passionate about it. I grabbed my best friend, Dewey, and I sat him down on my bed. And he still to this day calls it the Sermon on the Loft because it was a loft overlooking everything. And I sat him down. You've got to understand, he's almost seven feet tall, so I had to sit him down in order to look into his eyes. And so I, I sat him down on the bed, and I just started preaching something at him. To this day, I don't know what I preached at him, but I was just going to town on the man. And I get done, and I go, Dewey, you've got to come to know Jesus. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and I was finding my coworkers, man. I'd be just sitting in the break room waiting for him. I didn't care what. I just... I was full of passion and full of desire. No one had explained away everything that I knew I needed to do at this point. They hadn't tainted me. I was just going crazy sharing the gospel. This brother, what's his name, came onto our our school carrying a cross. And and he was the biggest jerk in the world. And he wasn't representing Christ well. And I remember going up and getting into his face and telling him, No, you're not about Jesus. You know, I just was this crazy guy. And I love it when new believers come to Christ. This one young man came to Christ here at Cornerstone when I was a high school pastor. And it was right about the time of the passion. And he saw the passion. He left the passion, went into a Starbucks, grabbed the chair, stood up on the chair. And he yelled in the whole Starbucks, you've got to see this movie. It's the truest thing ever, right? He was just so excited and so passionate. He came to my office and was telling me about it. And I go, why did you do it? He goes, I don't know. I go, did you love those people? I don't know. 
He had passion. He didn't have knowledge at that time. But there's almost a good sense because a lot of the knowledge we've started to fill our people towards does not increase their zeal and does not increase their passion and does not stoke the fire of everything that God has within us. In fact, what it tends to do as we gather in our small groups and our Bible studies and our different things is it tends to take the heat and turn it down. Doesn't it? Sadly, I've been in those kind of groups and we just kind of sit around and we explain away this amazing call of God of love and good deeds. See, the reason we're moving towards community, the reason that we're trying to help people get in their neighborhoods, the reason that we're reminding each other, no, love your literal neighbor as yourself is because if we don't keep focused on what God is keeping focused on, if we don't stir ourselves to what God has stirred us towards, We're going to get apathetic. We're going to get bored. We're going to have nice Bible studies and nice small groups. We're going to sit around and talk about the weather and accomplish nothing that has to do with this Christian life. See, there's something about new believers that this church needs, and that's what I love about this church. One of the reasons I love Cornerstone is I love when people come up. I mean, last week, I'll never forget, they were, they were, they were getting ready to baptize a guy. And, and the guy, he looks at one of the guys and he goes, do you understand what you've been called to? Do you understand that you're a believer? And he's just walking through all these things. And he gets done and the guy goes, what do you think? And he goes, sweet. <laughs> I was like, you baptized that guy. I mean, he just, he, in his own vernacular, he explained, I get what you've called me towards. The reason Cornerstone constantly needs the pitter-patter of young feet is yesterday I was, we went to uh, my sister's house in Redlands and, and we were celebrating my grandpa's 90th birthday and, and it was so chaotic. Once you include little kids where there's adults, have you ever noticed what happens? Just chaos. Don't touch that. No touch. No touch. No touch. Hey, over here. hey, going up the stairs. You know, it's just like it's just chaos just going on everywhere. There's something beautiful about that. Cornerstone needs new believers in it. We need to be about calling people to draw near because if we don't get new believers in it, the reality of what Scripture talks about is new believers bring to it a life that is so different. And he goes on and he says this. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. What he's talking about here is in 49 AD, uh, during uh, uh, the Emperor Claudius, there arose a, a huge kind of a chasm between the Jews in Rome and the Christian Jews in Rome. And when that arose, what, what Claudius decided to do was, and he actually wrote a, a, an edict about it that you can still find today in one of his writings, is he said, look, let's just get rid of all of them. So he took the Jews and the Christians in 49 AD, and he just took and he just threw them out of Rome. So what he's talking about here is, do you remember when you were so excited and passionate and took off and you were just these young believers, you didn't know what you were doing, you were going finding your Jewish friends, and when you found your, found your Jewish friends, you were proclaiming, ah, oh, the Messiah has come. And when you started proclaiming the Messiah has come, all of a sudden this friction started happening. Remember when Christus, or you remember when Claudius threw you out? I want to stir your memory there. That's where I want to stir your memory. He doesn't go grab stories from the Bible yet. He doesn't go grab anything. What he does is he grabs something in their literal life. In verse 34, he's actually going to use this word gnosko, knowing. He's going to say, you experientially knew it. You were there. You know it. 
And his whole thing is, do you remember? And the thing I asked all of you out there, do you remember when you were first saved? Do you? I was sitting down thinking through all the people when they were first saved. There was something about them they just didn't care For the first time, they understood that they can now be in right relationship with God. They can now draw near to this God. And literally, they were ready to let go of everything and drop everything behind until all of us in the church looked at them and said, Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Peace like a river. Don't go too psycho. You're going to make life for us uncomfortable. I need you to slow down. And the writer of Hebrews goes, No. This letter was probably written 15 years later. They were probably in the middle of experiencing the the trials that came along with the emperor Nero. If you don't know, in 64 AD, he blamed the Christians for things that were happening uniquely. A fire that happened inside of Rome. And he took Christians and he put them up on posts. And he lit them on fire to light his garden. And you're the writer of Hebrews that has to talk to these people. And he says, do you remember? And then he throws this in there. Verse 34. If you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. See, what he's talking about is back in that day was there was two types of things. There was one group of people that were suffering. And then in this group that was suffering, there was another group of people that came in and sacrificed. They saw the suffering. It says they had compassion. They were moved with sympathy. They saw what was happening. And literally this other group decided we are going to sacrifice to wrap our arms around you because we want to keep calling people near. And we understand that in order to keep drawing people near, I need to enter into where you're at to help you. What was happening was is, is that in prison at that time, if somebody got put in prison, and especially during this time in Claudius's reign, is they would put them in prison. And the only way that they would get water, the only way they would get clothing, the only way they would get food, the only way they would get anything is if somebody decided, I will bring it to you. Well, no big deal until you realize that the moment that you showed up and you brought this person this stuff, you were saying, I joined them. In other words, whatever you sentence you give to them, you can incur upon me. And to that, the writer of Hebrews says, do you remember? Do you remember? See, people always ask me, Todd, why the amphitheater? Why did you let that crazy guy, Francis, talk you into an amphitheater? What were you thinking, dude? Don't you know the weather gets hot here? Don't you know it might rain once a year? <laughs> well, Santa Ana's, Todd. Francis doesn't worry about it. He has no hair. <laughs> but the idea behind it as we prayed and we thought through it and, and we wrestled through what does it become, I remember even two, three, two years ago wrestling through this, is that how can we look at what God's people are having to experience around the world in different parts of the planet? They're suffering. 
See, this is where the writer of Hebrews unloads this theology. While you see suffering happening around the planet, while you watch your brothers and sisters go through the midst of suffering, in order to not hinder the gospel around there, Paul says, what I want you to do, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is I want you to take out of your plenty and make sure that you're able to help all of your brothers and sisters around the world not quit advancing this gospel that tells these people to draw near. See, there's a theology to it. It's not just because we're feeling like we need to be nice to people. It's because God said and he understood that we need to develop out there that when you see your brothers not able to do something, those of you that have should sacrifice so that those that don't are still able to fulfill what God's called them to do around the planet. And we look at that and we say, oh, drudgery, suffering, Sacrifice. But I want to show you a word in 1034 that's so important. I love this word. For you had compassion on those in prison. And look at this. And you what? Joyfully. I love that. See, the reason I love it is I grew up. It doesn't look like it anymore, but I used to be a runner. I used to run a lot. Now I bounce more, but that's okay. But I knew that in order to accomplish a goal, there were certain things that had to happen. I had to suffer, right? So you don't just sit around and go, hey, I got this idea. Let's just go run until we throw up. (laughs) What do you think? See, that's not natural. You don't go there. See, underneath that concept of running was, is I knew that in order to achieve a prize, in order to get something, I had to do certain things that prepare me to be able to get there. And what he's going to lay out here is the joy does not come in the suffering. The joy comes in knowing what's on the other side. See, in in Hebrews 12, 2, we're going to get there in a little bit. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus, what? Endured the cross. I mean, I cannot read the Garden of Gethsemane and sit there and go, oh, wow, Jesus was having a great time. (laughs) No, he was crying, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass, let it. But then he said an amazing statement, not my will, but yours be done. See, that's the cry of the Christian. I'm going to pain. God, I'm tired. God, I'm worn out. God, do you see my situation? God, do you understand what's going on here? God, how am I going to make it? Not my will, but yours be done. That's why he says, draw near. That's why he says, anchor yourself to him. He says all those things because he knows that inside of this clamoring that is our life, this struggle and this strain, that he puts out in front of us something different. Go with me back to 1034. Look at this. 1034. Because, he says this, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, I think at the bottom end of all of this, the reason that we don't want to suffer, the reason that all of us struggle through sacrifice is I don't think we honestly believe that on the other side of death there is something better than what this world has to offer. 
That's why the writer of Hebrews had to say, look, without faith, it's impossible to please God because you must believe he exists. You must actually believe there's a God there who is self-existent, who I find my contentment and I joy in. When I find my contentment and joy in, he also says, look, not only does that, but you have to believe that he rewards those who eagerly seek him or draw near to him. See, the bottom that all of us struggle through, the reason that we don't want to go through pain and the reason that we don't go through suffering is because we really don't believe that on the other side of death there is a promise to which we could never, ever imagine. See, when you get together and stir and stir and stir, in verse 25 of Hebrews 10, he also uses this word, encourage. One of the ways we have to encourage is we have to look at people and say, it's worth it. It's worth it. Don't give up. Don't forget. See, in our effort to build this utopian world, we've forgotten this is not our home. Peter says, you're just strangers and aliens. This is Motel 6. There's going to come a point when God says it's checkout time. But underneath the Christian hope is this idea there is something greater to be had. See, all through the book of Hebrews, especially when we get to Hebrews 11, he talks about Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Noah and all these different people. And he lines them up as this group of people that literally the whole thing was is that they so believed God, they so believed that he existed, and they so believed that his reward was greater than anything I could ever imagine, that they were willing to do whatever it took. Whatever it took. Even to the point, can you imagine the day that Abraham heard, Abraham, I'd like you to take your son up onto a mountain and sacrifice him. Ever thought how abnormal that is? But somehow Abraham knew it talks about in Hebrews 11 that now God is able to even raise the dead, so I will take my son. See, we're so afraid because we really don't believe it's worth it. And the reason we need to get together is to stir one another, to remind each other, yes, it is. Yes, it is. We need to read the book of Revelation. It's all about where you might be blessed. You might find your hope and your joy and your contentment. We might, we're not supposed to read it and go, <gasps> we're supposed to read it and go, oh, God, come quickly. Take us home. You're to be alongside of other people and go, you know, the more you hold on to that, the less and less you're going to want God and the less and less you want God, the less and less you're going to have hope and the less and less you have hope, the more and more you're going to be miserable. Can I just suggest that you let go of it? See, all this drawing near and this finding our hope, it has an eternal point to it. See, the Bible talks about there's going to come a time Where Jesus is going to come back. And it says in several passages that as he comes back, what comes with him is his reward. See, we're not just doing this because we're duty people. Oh gosh, some of us are, aren't we? We're soldiers. Going to do the Christian life, you know? And some of us look around at him going, hey, big shooter. Paul does use an analogy where he says, be a good soldier in 2 Timothy. He does. And he talks about a farmer and he talks about an athlete. He uses all this language to conjure it up. But this life, this whole idea of drawing near, of clinging to him, of stirring one another towards love and good deeds, this suffering, this sacrifice, it's not for nothing. It is oh so big and so important. It's about what comes with him. Now look what he says here in verse 35. 
Therefore, based upon that, off of everything I've just said, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't give up. Don't give up. But Todd, I'm tired. Don't give up. You don't know my husband. Don't give up. You don't know my kids. Don't give up. You don't know my situation. Don't give up. It's a group of Christians looking around at one another saying, don't give up. See, the the time that we finally give up is when sin is waiting right there at the door for us. And the moment we give up, sin goes, come on, I got something for you. The moment we forget that he exists, that he's a rewarder of everything. Look at verse 26 in chapter 10. The moment we forget that, or this group of people that forgets it ongoingly, it would be the better way of saying it. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See, on one side, God is going, no, you can understand heaven, heaven, heaven. And on another side is this concept in which literally, if you don't find your contentment in God, if you don't now find your thrill in his reward, literally the idea is you will always grab a hold of sin. And when you grab a hold of sin, you are demonstrating that quite possibly you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, which means the only expectation for you is an eternity in hell. There's these two sides of fear and expectation that drive us. He goes on and says this in 36. You have need of endurance. He says, I know you're tired. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what's promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and and preserve their souls. See, the reason we need to stir is because of the seriousness of what I just read, and I'm going to explain it to you. See, in the 80s and 90s, when I was, well, 90s was when I was being a youth pastor, early 2000, we made the gospel about us. Let's throw a pizza party. (laughs) I had this whole idea in which, I know, we'll get lots of pizza and play fun games, and then kids will want Jesus. Come on, kids. I was more of a Blinkies fun club than I was a pastor. Come on. Isn't Jesus fun? Right? And we put out there, and I mean, I was, I was the guru. My first four youth events I threw, the police came. Oh, talk about move the students. Underneath was this whole thing in which people said, hey, you got to show them Christians are fun. I mean, can you see Jesus doing that? Hey, guys. Peter, John, woohoo! Come follow me. You know, I mean, this would be so weird. You want pizza? You want soda? Let's go bowling. No, I'm not anti those things. I'm all cool on pizza and bowling and soda. But the means by which we chose to draw people was this, this, this fake facade. We said, come to Jesus because he's fun. Come to Jesus because he'll make you laugh. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. In fact, if you come to Jesus and you choose to live godly in Christ Jesus, you'll be persecuted. 
But come to Jesus because he's the only way, the truth, and the life whereby which you can come to the Father. In John 6, I'll never forget this part. Jesus had just laid out in front of all these people what it means to follow him. In fact, one of the statements he threw out was, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my, in my kingdom. Okay, not exactly a good gospel message. I mean, can you imagine that? I get in front of everybody and say, unless you eat Jesus' blood and drink, or eat his flesh and drink his blood, you cannot be his disciple. I doubt anybody would be going, oh, I'll come forward. And literally the idea was people scattered. And then he looks at his disciples, because what we can tell, those are the only guys left. Talk about a terrible evangelist. Jesus needed work on his, on his preparation. But he looks at Peter and he goes, you're going to leave too? And Peter goes, no, I'm not going to leave. You have the words of life. One of the statistics that absolutely freaks me out is that between 80 and 90% of high school students, when they leave church, leave the church, literally. They walk out of these doors and they walk away. Why? Well, we want to say, oh, because we need college ministry. We need a really fun college ministry where the kids can come and they can draw pictures and then they can, they can sing songs. That's what we need to be able to do. No. We need to be a group of people that so believes in God, that is so passionate about him, that so put our hope in him, that is so much stirring one another, that when this group of people sees it, either we're going to find out whether they're saved here or not. See, the only reason they're leaving and falling away is because they never embraced the true Christ here. And I watch, man, a student after student that I was a pastor of left and has now walked away from God. Because they walked away from my student ministry trying to find the next pizza party. And that doesn't preach well when you're going through a difficult time. The writer of Hebrews, though, says something really neat in Hebrews 12. Go there with me. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in other words, since, since we're surrounded by this group of people, and that word witnesses could mean looking at or it could mean testifiers. In other words, and that's the way I take this word. They're testifying. They're, they're screaming out to us. Since we're surrounded by this great group of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfect of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now receives the reward, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the idea in here, these witnesses, the idea is, it's, it's like back in Hebrews eleven four, 4, where, at, where Abel speaks from the grave. Abel and Enoch, Noah is screaming, run, run, run. Don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth it. Abraham's screaming from his grave, run, run, don't quit. Don't stop, it's worth it. All the people that followed, I've been reading biographies about men like Luther. Luther screaming from his grave, no, keep running. And Calvin and Zwingli and Huss and Spurgeon and all these great men of the faith and women of the faith through ages that literally sold everything to follow Jesus Christ. And now at the end, when they're now seated in front of God, they're screaming from their grave, it was worth it, it was worth it, it was worth it. Run, run, don't grow weary. It's worth it. See, I was running up a hill yesterday and when I was thinking through this, I was just like, oh, don't I want to pray? 
had to stop at the top of a hill in, in Redlands, California. And I'm just like, God, you are worth it. I didn't realize there's a guy standing over there. And he goes, what? <laughs> Never mind, I'm talking to God. You know, I'm drawing near. Don't you want to pray when you think about that? Doesn't prayer make sense now? Doesn't scripture start to make sense when it's worth it? Doesn't gathering with other believers in your neighborhood to stir one another make sense if you really now believe that it's worth it, that it's worth it not to fail and fall by the wayside? Don't you want to pray? Don't you want to draw near to God? At the end of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews looks out at all the people and he says this, Jesus went outside the city gates. And then he says, go and join him. Go and join him. Go leave comfort, leave security, leave all these things that are so making this world attractive. He says, look, walk away with them and go join Jesus. And then he finishes with this idea. He says, because this isn't our city. He says, we have a city that's to come. As a pastor of Cornerstone, I know some of you think I'm nutty when I'm preaching right now. I know some of you think I have fallen off my rocker. But I also have to consider Hebrews 13.8, which says, look, consider the men that teach the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. See, that's the other part that started to freak me out, is that somehow you all are supposed to imitate me as a pastor and elder of Cornerstone. And I realized that if I'm ever going to be a part of a church that's willing to love as God called out love, I've got to do it myself, and I've got to gather my own neighborhood and call this group of people and say it's worth it. I don't want you to follow me. I don't want you to follow Francis. I don't want you to follow the elders or the pastors just because we have a title. See, titles are a dime a dozen. I don't want you to follow us that because I want you to look at our faith and say, those men have an integrity of faith that's worth following. I'll follow them anywhere they go. If they're going to join Jesus outside the city gates... And if that's where hope is, and that's where joy is, and that's where contentment is, and that's where Jesus is, I'll go. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I know this probably isn't the best gospel message you've ever heard. But it's worth it. I didn't pull punches on you. I didn't try to do neat tricks in front of you. I'm just here to tell you, it's worth it. If you don't know Jesus Christ and you'd like to come to him, today's the day. If you've never been baptized and you've never walked through that first act of obedience, today's the day. If you're somebody out there that you're looking at your life going, you're right, I love ease, I love comfort, I love safety, I love security. And maybe you're wondering, man, am I even saved? Love to talk to you. But the last thing is this. It's worth it. It's worth it. 
I promise you when you stand in front of Jesus, you'll realize it was worth it. You won't regret it to truly live a life of suffering and sacrifice, not just because of duty, but because it's worth it. Amen. God, thanks for this group of people. Sometimes I have to pinch myself, Father, that I'm able to pastor a group of people that when we preach, it might happen. And God, I know it's been heavy today. And um, at the same time, though, God, I believe you are calling this group of people to leave our safety and our comfort and our security. And, And God, I thank you so much in your sovereign grace that you're choosing to do it in ways sometimes we can't control. God, I don't, I don't pray ill will on any of us, but I do pray for pain. God, I believe that if you take things away, it's only to remind us that you are, you are it. And so, God, if you need to take away our money, if you need to take away our, even our homes, if you need to take away things in order for us to cling to you with everything we are, God, we submit to that willfully. But God, may it not just be because we're bored and have nothing better to do, but God, I pray you would move in our hearts to understand you're taking it away so that we might be a group of people that loves passionately. God, I beg you that you would stir in our hearts. It's worth it. God, I pray we'd find an integrity that we wouldn't be about just knowledge of things, but we would be about honestly finding out and living out the truths of this. We love you so much, God. You are good. And you're good all the time in your precious name. Amen.